Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6 and 7. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heavens and every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his wife's and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning. My name's Rick, and I'm one of the elders here at Antioch. We're working our way through the book of Genesis here during summertide in the church calendar. Over the past four weeks, John and Pete have taken one chapter each week, uh, but today I've been given chapters five through 10. We'll be, we'll be focusing on chapters six through eight and Noah's flood. But first, let me tell you a bit about myself by sharing one of my favorite Bible verses, and first, one of my least favorite. By trade, I'm an avian ecologist and an ornithologist, and one of my tasks over the years has been to capture birds, to ban them for individual identification, and sometimes to affix a telemetry unit on so that we can follow their movements. Catching a savvy adult golden eagle by placing a carcass and trap within the territory that it knows very well can be quite difficult, and recapturing the same bird three or four years later to take off the telemetry unit requires a good deal of skill and patience. Ably assisted by my children, this is Willow, our youngest, we were usually successful. But while waiting for days for that success, when I come across Psalm 91.3, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, I worry that God is colluding with the target eagle to help him avoid capture. Of course, a better reading of this verse understands the fowler to represent the enemy of our souls. On that view, I dislike this verse for utilizing the metaphor of a hardworking bird trapper to describe Satan. 
One of my favorite verses, or at least one that I have used to order my life, is Proverbs 21, 19, which says that it is better to live in a high desert than with a cantankerous and nagging wife. <laughs> the Hebrew doesn't actually contain the word high. In what the textual critics would call a scribal gloss, I inserted that word for my own purposes. Anyway, I am my wife Dawn, whom, as any of you who know her will attest, is the extreme opposite of the woman described here. We have lived in the high desert of Central Oregon for going on 30 years and have been a part of Antioch since, since its inception more than 17 years ago. In addition to being a biologist, I'm also a Christian apologist. The goal of apologetics is to offer a reasoned formulation and winsome presentation of a rational defense of the Christian world and life view. In my dual roles of scientist and apologist, I find the Christian worldview to be the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live. I further accept the truth of the thesis laid out in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, and accepted by Christians throughout the church era, that God has revealed himself to us in two books, the book of his word, the Bible, and the book of his world, creation that these two revelations will never contradict one another, and that when they appear to contradict each other, then we have a wrong interpretation, either of the creation or of scripture or both. I have a good deal to share about these chapters, so we'd better dive in now or we could be here for 40 days and nights. <laughs> I assume that most of you are familiar with the flood narrative. I use the word narrative instead of story because the word story has the connotation of fiction oftentimes. And I take what we have in Genesis 6 through 8 to be an actual event in human history. The apostle Peter, the writer of Hebrews, and Jesus himself all took Noah and the flood to be a real person and an actual event. Outside support comes from the fact that people groups around the world have a great flood as part of their oral history. And this is because everyone in the world is a descendant of the eight survivors of that flood. A couple of relevant and interesting facts come from the field of genetics. One of several ways of assessing genetic diversity is through mitochondrial DNA. Everyone, regardless of gender, receives all of their mitochondrial DNA from their mother. Testing of this DNA has demonstrated that everyone alive in the world today shares a single common female ancestor only tens of thousands of years ago, which the geneticists refer to as mitochondrial Eve. Another method uses the DNA of Y chromosomes. This assesses the relatedness of males only because, if I may get so personal for a moment, you gals don't have Y chromosomes. Every male alive in the world today shares a single common male ancestor, which geneticists refer to as Y chromosome Adam but he dates to a bit more recently than does mitochondrial Eve. And this makes sense given the biblical narrative, since the flood represents a bottleneck in human genetics with everyone descended from Noah on the male side, but there having been four women on the ark with their common female ancestor being further back in time. Separated as we are from the event of the flood itself, I'm afraid we tend to see it as a rather cute standalone Bible story. We fail to place it within the context of the greater biblical narrative, and we teach it and like it for some of the wrong reasons. On the one hand, it is used as a children's story to illustrate the wondrous diversity of animal life, 
that makes up God's creation. And pictures and models of the ark show kangaroos and toucans, chimpanzees and penguins, none of which would have actually been on the ark. More about that in a bit. On the other hand, we focus upon the salvation of Noah and his family, making it a story of individual salvation. There is, to be sure, a salvation aspect to this narrative, but it is much broader than Noah and his family. But this is primarily a story about judgment. It represents the lowest point in human history and describes an unprecedented judgment on the part of a righteously angry God against a humanity that was depraved beyond our ability to imagine. Genesis 6 through 11, 611 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. We ought to be able to relate to this verse. I don't know if you know it, but there was another mass shooting early this morning in Baltimore. We live in a land filled with violence. Violence permeates our movies, television, video games, and daily news. Pastor Sean likes to include a Wendell Berry quote in each of his sermons, but for me, it's Bob Marley, whose assessment of our times was, everywhere is war. Now, Jesus made it very clear by what he taught and exemplified that his kingdom was to be one of nonviolence, where his followers never replayed violence with violence, where they didn't fear for their lives or worry about their possessions, where they loved and forgave their enemies and indeed were willing to give up their own lives for those enemies. Jesus admonished his disciples to have nothing to do with the sword, but instead to be peacemakers. The church in America has much to repent of in this regard. In a land filled with gun violence, it is white evangelicals who more than any other religious or non-religious group are most likely to own guns, to oppose restrictions on gun ownership, and to support our country's hawkish tendencies and stockpiling of weaponry. We American followers of Christ seem to be quite selective about which of his teachings to heed and which we will ignore. But to return to the scripture, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. We should have a bit more difficulty imagining what this verse describes. I'll leave it to you to think about all the atrocities <clears throat> that your mind can call up. Auschwitz, tribal warfare and genocide in places like Rwanda, the inventive ways that Nero and other emperors tortured and killed Christians and others, and then roll these all up into one and imagine that the people of Noah's day exceeded all that in depravity and evil. And these were the very humanity that God had designed to reign with him over all of his very good creation. So here would be a good place to remind ourselves of the main narrative arc, that's arc with a C now, not a K, of all of scripture. The biblical story is one of creation and redemption inextricably intertwined. We can't talk about redemption without understanding that it is all of creation that is being redeemed. And we can't talk rightly about creation without acknowledging that it is the object of God's great redemptive purposes. As we saw a few weeks ago in chapter one of Genesis, when the Lord had completed his work of creation, he made a very careful assessment of it, and his conclusion was that it was very good. For his own good reasons, the creator not only included humanity within creation, but also desired that they reign with him as co-regents over the rest of creation. Human beings were and are 
to be the caretakers of the rest of creation, and we were and are to carry out that task in God's own image, that is, the way he would, lovingly and sacrificially. As we saw two weeks ago in chapter three, humankind rebelled against God, the world was broken, and God's creation, including humanity, came to require redeeming. It is, of course, the creator himself who takes the role of redeemer, but God not only did not give up on his very good creation, but he did not give up on humanity. The text before us today is about the one time in all of human history when God came closest to giving up on humanity, when the vast majority of the people alive were wicked to the point of being useless to God's purposes for creation and redemption. After the flood, the Lord renewed his vision for humanity as his co-stewards, as he repeated to Noah the commands originally given to Adam. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. So after the judgment of the flood, the Lord was again willing to place the well-being of the rest of his creation into the hands of the human beings made in his image. And this partnership with God is a thread running throughout scripture. We see it in John the Revelator's vision. Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is a vision of the future fully redeemed creation. Present in that vision are also every creature in the skies and on the land and under the land and in the sea. God's plan A is and always has been to allow humanity to reign with him as stewards over his creation. In Romans 8, we find a description of the time in which we now live, between Christ's advent to inaugurate his kingdom and his return to consummate it. For the creation waits in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed. The fuller passage is a picture of the creation itself groaning as it waits for us, those redeemed by Christ, to step up and fulfill our God-given role of caretakers of his creation. Pete shared with us three weeks ago that we are all called to be gardeners. Let me take it a step further. We are all called to be conservationists and ecologists. Regardless of your particular vocation or calling, if you are a follower of Christ, a part of your job description includes serving your Lord by caring for what he has created. And you can't rightly care for anything without learning as much, <coughs> excuse me, as much as you can about what it takes to keep it healthy and flourishing. So back to the flood. Though primarily judgment, there is, of course, a salvation aspect to it. But what is being saved is much more than eight people. The judgment by flood entails the salvation of the creation itself from the wicked humanity of that time and the salvation of God's purposes for creation's redemption. We have now placed the flood in its proper context within the larger narrative arc of the whole Bible. And I hope we have seen that it is not a cute standalone story, but a description of the darkest period in human history and the darkest period in the progress of God's purposes for his creation. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. So God decided to purge the land of all but a very few of the humans alive at this particular time. And the means he chose was a vast flood. We might wonder why a flood? Well, we should first acknowledge that water can be an effective way of cleaning and disinfecting an area. And it was particularly successful given the topography of the area occupied by humans at that time. In other later judgments described in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament depictions of the judgment at the end of this age, purging and refining fire plays a prominent role. But the building of the ark was itself to serve as a prophetic warning to the wicked people of Noah's day that judgment indeed was coming. We here in the high desert experience wildfire more than we do flooding. But we can see that if Noah, rather than taking 100 years to build a huge boat, had instead been commanded by God to spend those years faithfully limbing up his juniper trees to prepare for a coming judgment by fire, it simply would not have had the same powerful prophetic message. <laughs> now, if you grew up in a conservative evangelical setting, you likely were taught that the flood covered the entire planet Earth and wiped out all creatures from across the planet except for a pair of each saved on the ark. Today, you can go to Florence, Kentucky and experience a life-sized model of the ark complete with wallabies and platypuses, macaws and aardvarks, and even baby dinosaurs. There you will be told that the Bible teaches and that all good Christians believe that the universe and earth were created only 6,000 years ago and that a global flood in Noah's day explains away all of the evidence, especially from geology and paleontology, for a much older creation. What you need to know and may not realize is that neither of these ideas is part of historical Christianity. The global flood idea became popular only within the lifetimes of many of us. In 1961, to be exact, with the publishing of a book called The Genesis Flood. The young earth interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis came to prominence only in the 17th century, again very late in church history. None of the ancient church creeds and no doctrinal statements prior to about 100 years ago contain either of these beliefs. Both were thought by fundamentalists beginning in the last century to be the answer to defeating Darwinian naturalism by claiming that evolution didn't have enough time to arrive at the great diversity of life today and in the fossil record. Ironically, only a couple of decades after the publication of the Genesis Flood, astronomers and cosmologists were reluctantly forced to accept Big Bang cosmology and acknowledge that the universe did in fact have a beginning just as the Bible and Christianity had always maintained. Scientific opposition to the Big Bang Theory was largely due to the recognition that it sounded a whole lot like Genesis 1-1, and that it settled a long-standing debate in favor of the Christian view, and that a few billion years did not allow nearly enough time for evolution to produce the great diversity of life on Earth today and in the fossil record. Christian opposition to the Big Bang Theory was not because it contradicted the teachings of the Bible or of historical Christianity, but because it contradicted the 17th century interpretation of Genesis that claimed the creation occurred very recently. 
Back to the scriptures. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But here, throughout this passage, it seems to be all-encompassing in, in its scope. Wasn't the entire world covered by the flood described here? Well, many times when we come to passages in Scripture that make reference to the whole world, we automatically and naturally recognize its extent and intent to be less than that of the entire planet. So let me walk with you interactively through how you do this all the time. In Romans 1.8, Paul tells the Roman Christians, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So does Paul intend for us to infer from this statement that Australian Aborigines had become aware of the faith of the Christians in Rome? No. <laughs> Although Paul uses the phrase all the world, we easily and correctly realize that he is talking about the geographical region of which he and his readers had knowledge, the area conquered and controlled by Rome. First Kings 10.24 says, The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Are we meant to gather that there were ambassadors making their way to the Middle East from China and South America? Correct. Again, we rightly understand this whole world to be limited to the human beings that made up the regions known to the Hebrew people of that day. Genesis 41:56. the famine was over all the face of the earth. This statement comes from the same book of the Bible as does the flood account and uses the same phrasing. Is this passage telling us that people on Polynesian islands and the ancestors of the Inuits living in Alaska were simultaneously experiencing the famine affecting the land of the Israelites and Egyptians? Right again. We correctly understand this to be saying that within reasonable traveling distance of Egypt, there was a drought that precluded the flourishing of crops and therefore of livestock and people. It is simply poor interpretation to see this famine as simultaneously affecting the entire planet. And there are two contexts to keep in mind here, and both lead to the same conclusion. The narrative context involves the intent of the story. In this case, it provides an explanation for why Joseph's brothers and their families had to go to Egypt. Then there's the context of Moses and his audience. Neither Moses, Joseph, nor any of the original listeners or readers would have understood the famine to have been of global proportions, and neither should we. Each of these passages intends to convey that within the geographic scale defined by the context, everything or everyone was involved. So here's the basic hermeneutic principle that you have naturally applied to each of these passages. It is the context and intent of the passage that limits the geographical extent, and that a priori or beforehand, as it were. We cannot rightly interpret any passage of scripture without first understanding the intent and context of the passage. So we violate this fundamental rule when we come to Genesis 6 through 8 and imagine the flood as covering the entire planet Earth. In common with the famine of Joseph's day, this passage would not have been understood by the original hearers or readers as applying to an entire planet. They would not have even had such a category. Indeed, it is only we moderns that having a global understanding of the world in which we live 
are tempted to misapply that understanding to the writers, the writings of an ancient author who didn't share it. There is an important difference, however, between the flood and the later famine. By the time of the famine, there would have been people in distant parts of the earth, and these would have been unaffected by the famine occurring in the Middle East. But by the time of the earlier flood, all humanity was still confined to the region of Mesopotamia. The flood did indeed affect all the people alive at the time, even though it would have been confined to that region in which they lived. Prior to the flood account, there are no places mentioned outside of that region. And if we take the Bible's narrative seriously, human migration away from the Middle East into the rest of the earth did not occur until after the flood account, or indeed until after the Tower of Babel event of Genesis 11, next week. There's also a translation problem here. So back to the scripture. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Everything that moved on the earth perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now, when we read the word earth, we immediately think of the third rock from the sun. And when we read the word heavens, we think of the vastness of the starry skies. But the Hebrew words used throughout this passage, Eretz and Shamayim, and often translated earth and heavens, more correctly simply mean land and skies. Earth and heavens feed into our modern global perspective, a perspective completely foreign to that of the ancient writer and readers. Whereas if the relevant words were more correctly translated land and sky, we would be better able to keep in mind <clears throat> the much narrower context in which the narrative takes place, the Mesopotamian plain in which all humanity lived at the time. Genesis 8:14 records that after the flood, by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Consistency demands that if we take the floodwaters to have uncovered an entire planet, then when we come to this verse, we must conclude that there came a time when the entire planet was dry, with no oceans, lakes, or rivers. And this is obviously absurd. Thank you, Aurora. <clears throat> this verse should instead serve as a reminder that in none of this account is a planet in view, but rather a finite and particular land, all the land inhabited by the wicked people being judged. In his second epistle, the apostle Peter refers to the flood and twice uses qualifiers that imply a distinction between the whole world and the more limited world that was flooded. In 2.5, he applies the flood to the world's ungodly people. And in 3.6, he describes the flood as pertaining to the world of that time thus distinguishing it from the world of the Roman Empire as known to his readers. So to continue our examination, when we read of all, high, all the high mountains being covered by water, would the people of Moses' day have understood that to include the Alps, the Himalayas, the Rockies, and the Andes? Of course not. Rather, the context and intent tell us that within the region inhabited by humanity, Everything was underwater. And the main point in this narrative is that there was no escape to high ground. 
This flood was of unprecedented magnitude, and the only place of salvation was the ark that Noah, at the Lord's urging, had been building for years. And then there are all the animals described as being gathered together to the ark. And Noah and his sons gathered together to the ark. I'm sorry. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In 2021, scientists discovered for the first time this little creature dubbed the nano chameleon in northern Madagascar. Must we believe either that Noah found this fully adult individual in the much less time available to him, or that this guy and his mate traveled to the very inhospitable habitat in the Middle East to find and board the ark? To be a follower of Christ and to take his word seriously, must we believe that after the ark landed in the mountains of Ararat, a pair of flightless kiwi birds somehow traveled from those mountains to the islands of New Zealand before laying the eggs that would initiate the population of kiwis found there today? Again, the answer is, of course not. The context and intent of this ancient flood account dictate that animals residing in distant parts of the world, either before or after the flood event, are not intended to be read into the account. And the purpose of taking animals into the ark was not the preservation of species, as most of them would have had broader distributions than that of the area flooded, but rather that the land that had been flooded could quickly achieve again the ecology it had contained previously, and so that Noah and his family could quickly resume their animal husbandry and their worship. So why does this matter? Why is it important that we get it right with regard to how extensive the flood was? It's not a salvation issue, and I'm not just trying to ruin the way you may have always understood this popular Bible story. But I think there are several good reasons for us to want to get this right. Let me give you five such reasons, a hermeneutic one, an apologetic one, an eschatological one, and two theological ones. When I say a hermeneutic reason, I mean that as followers of Christ, we need to take seriously his word. We are admonished to rightly divide the scriptures, to put away childish things, and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are warned against making claims about scripture that are not true. And doing all of this well depends upon applying the basic rules of good scholarship and common sense, not reading the text simplistically and naively from our own modern and English perspectives. Related to that is the apologetic reason. As we seek to be ambassadors of Christ's kingdom and share the good news of his redemptive purposes, we dare not put artificial stumbling blocks in the path to, believe, a path to belief of those we are called to reach with the gospel. Young Earth creationism and the global flood are two of the biggest reasons why people today don't even consider the true claims of the Bible and historic Christianity. Here's a relevant quote from Augustine from many centuries ago. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an unbeliever to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on scientific topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinion about our books, 
How are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven when they think their pages are full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have learnt from experience and the light of reason? Closer to home, young people raised in the conservative church are leaving it in unprecedented numbers, in part because when they go off to college or out in the world, they realize that what they were told that Christians believe about the age of the earth and the extent of the flood is not true of the actual world. I stated at the top that Christianity is the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live. But God's creation is filled with overwhelming and diverse evidences that creation is billions of years old and that the idea of a global flood is completely unfounded. And notice that I have not led with the scientific arguments against a global flood, but have only brought it in at the last as a corroborative. I hope we have seen this morning that we must reject a global flood purely on the basis of sound interpretive principles and common sense. The eschatological reason for getting this right is really just a, a third theological reason, but one that deals specifically with the future and end times. When we fail to understand, as, um, as in a misreading of the flood narrative, the centrality to God's purposes for this very good creation, it leads to misunderstanding this creation's place in the future. Many American Christians do this when they overlook the truth of Colossians 1.20, which tells us that Jesus died on the cross to reconcile to himself all created things, not just human souls. And for many who believe that during the flood, God was willing to wipe out animals from the entire planet, it is an easy step to think that this creation has no place in his ultimate plans, but that his people will be raptured away to heaven and this creation destroyed. These twin misunderstandings constitute much of what Mark Knoll calls the scandal of the evangelical mind in his book by that title. Knoll refers to how young earth creationism as a fatally flawed interpretive scheme of the sort that no responsible Christian teacher in the history of the church ever endorsed before the 20th century came to dominate the minds of American evangelicals on scientific questions. And he laments rapture theology, as in the Left Behind series, as an equally unsound hermeneutic that has been used with wanton abandon to dominate 20th century evangelical thinking about world affairs. Now, Jesus himself does make a clear connection between the judgment of Noah's flood and the coming judgment at his return. But in doing so, he made the very opposite point of that taken by many modern conservative evangelicals. These latter folks look at Matthew 24, 40 through 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And conclude that we don't want to be left behind when Jesus comes again, but that we want to be taken away from the earth. But Jesus's point, as is obvious by the surrounding context, is just the opposite. Here are the preceding verses. But concerning that day and hour of his return in judgment at the end of the age, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." 
Then back to the verse I already read. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. According to Jesus, just as the unwary and ungodly were swept away at the sudden judgment by flood, so too the unwary and ungodly will be swept away at the coming sudden judgment at our Lord's return. We shouldn't want to be taken away. Instead, we should want to be left behind on the earth that is part of the creation that Christ came and will come again to redeem. There are actually several theological reasons for correctly understanding the flood as limited to the part of the world in which the humans of that day lived, but let me mention just two, and the first involves our understanding of God as creator. Throughout scripture, we are admonished to worship God as creator, <clears throat> and Jesus himself tells his followers to study the plants and animals to learn about God's design of and provision for them. Each creature alive today and in the fossil record is or was perfectly designed for its time on earth, for its location and role, and for the ecosystem of which it is or was a part. The revelation from nature shows that God loves creating, that he has filled the earth with the maximum amount and diversity of life, and that he has spent billions of years preparing earth for humanity's creation. And the disciple who reads the creation at face value can rightly praise the Lord our Creator for all of that marvelous design. By contrast, the defense of evolution depends on claims that the design we see at every level of life is only apparent, not real. Similarly, modern defense of a young creation and a global flood depends at every turn on the argument that God has filled the creation with deceptive appearances, both as to the age of creation and the distribution of life on earth. But here's the other theological reason for getting the judgment by flood right. Throughout scripture, God is portrayed as patient, merciful, and gracious. When sin becomes so bad as to need purging, God invariably acts like the master surgeon who excises the diseased tissue while allowing all of the healthy tissue to remain. He would not have brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, had there been even a handful of redeemable people in them. And even when he did bring judgment on those wicked cities, he spared all of the other Amorites living in the surrounding countryside. We do an injustice to God's character when we don't rightly recognize that even when humankind had reached its most depraved state, God's judgment by flood was calculated to destroy only the sinful humans and the animals infected by contact with them, not the rest of his very good creation. And despite God's rightful standing as a perfectly holy judge, it is his mercy, mercy patience, and grace that should produce in us the overwhelming gratitude and praise due to him, because that grace and mercy have reached even to us. So we come to the Lord's table today to commemorate and celebrate his mercy and grace and his sacrificial love for rebellious humanity and for all of his very good creation. And as we eagerly await his promised return, we need not fear the coming judgment, for it, like the flood of judgment of Noah's day, will target the evil and leave behind all that, by God's grace, will have a place in his plan of redemption and his eternal kingdom.